0: As the chopper dropped toward the pad under the womp 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 of the rotors, I saw a World War II-style ammunition dump in the middle of the base. Great call. One enemy moored around and the whole place would be history. I walked off the pad and jumped into a jeep with a kid behind its steering wheel waiting to run me over to General Ewer's headquarters. The ride was an eye-opener. Nearly 10,000 rear echelon motherfuckers, ramps to the grunts out on the line, were stationed in Dong surrounded by all the creature comforts. I saw a miniature golf course and swimming pool. I caught a glimpse inside a barracks, decked out with clean beds under mosquito nets. These guys pulled down the same combat pay as the young soldiers in the bush who lived in the mud watching their feet rot, burning leeches out of their their crotches and laying down their lives. Dong Tam crawled with Vietnamese civilians doing chores, changing the sheets on the beds for the generals and colonels, shaving the brasses and jowls, ironing fatigues, and shining shoes. It took only one sympathizer to report every U.S. burp and fart to the Viet Cong, but what really got my heart pounding was that ammo dump. What kind of commander would squat on top of his own powder cake? General Ewer's briefing lasted an hour with Colonel Hunt bombing has had an agreement every time Ewell spun his hand to make another point. After that, they sent me on my way. I left that meeting unsure of myself, anxious. I wasn't sweating a sick unit of le- or leading troops. I had enlisted in the army before I finished puberty, and in the two decades since, I had commanded two infantry battalions and nine companies, two rifle companies and two artillery batteries and one each of Raider, Heavy Weapons, Armored Cavalry, Combat Support, and Headquarter Companies. But here, the Chain and the Terrain both spelled trouble. Pragmatically, I could do nothing about the Chain of Command, and the tactical operational stupidity of Dong Tam. I'd be out of Yule's and Hunt's eyesight soon enough, and worrying about how combat operations were being handled from above was a waste of time at best, and got men killed at worst. So that is what Colonel Hackworth, uh, at the time, I believe Lieutenant Colonel Hackworth, walked into in his second deployment to Vietnam. Colonel Hackworth is one of the most decorated soldiers in U.S. history. I believe some of his awards included. 10 silver stars uh, about half a dozen purple hearts the distinguished service cross which is the nation's second highest award only second to the medal of honor which he was put in for multiple times so he is a tough man who has seen a lot he joined the army well, when he was 14, he joined the Merchant Marines, uh, he used his brother's birth certificate to lie about his age. And he was in the Merchant Marines during World War II. After World War II, got out, joined the army, and was shipped to Italy Trieste, Italy immediately after the end of World War II so he was brought up in the army by the toughest of the tough, which is the greatest generation, the fighters from World War II and he was part of a unit which was called TRUST which is an acronym basically stated where he was stationed Deployed and it was tough. And from there, he ended up going and fighting in Korea. I uh, was shot in the head, went back, kept fighting. Eventually, in battlefield commission, which is something that doesn't exist anymore. But basically, If you were a good leader, liked by your men up and down the chain of command, uh, they could put you in to go from enlisted to officer. And so when he was given that opportunity, he said, no, I want to stay in and be enlisted. I don't want to be high and mighty. I don't want the silver spoon. I want to be a fighter and it turned into an order and eventually he was made an officer so he continues and fights through korea um he fought with the most elite units in korea the raiders rangers he went awol on multiple occasions was basically awol for probably half the time he was there um basically if he didn't like a unit he didn't like the leadership On one occasion uh, he found his officers in the unit to not be people who wanted to win the war so he walked away found another one and of course that next unit he went to was more than happy to take in someone who was willing to leave a unit who had bad leadership because Hackworth who also went by a few names that we'll get to later Mr. Infantry he wanted to fight and he wanted to win so that is what he did throughout his entire career so we're not going to cover his whole story that is detailed in a book called About Face and that details His entire life it's an autobiography But That's the information That's primarily needed To understand this book So He gets to Vietnam He was with the 101st He did some command time there And now He's assigned to a unit Called the 439th which is a unit that was stationed in the Mekong Delta of Vietnam, which is, well, quite different than where he was previously with the 101st, which was previously the Vietnam Highlands, and the geography of Vietnam really varies between where you are, but where he was now with the 439th in the Mekong Delta, They had to contend with the geography of a delta, which basically means there's rivers, there's swamps, there's leeches, there's mosquitoes, which we'll touch on later, and the worst of all, there's civilians. And they're everywhere. And so one of the concerns being a combat leader in the Mekong Delta in 1969 is that you have to be very discriminate in who you are engaging with the Vietnam War was obviously one of the most contentious wars in US history arguably the most contentious war and a lot of that Came down to dealing with the civilians and not dealing with but respecting and doing everything you can to keep alive those civilians. And Hackworth did a pretty good job of that. His commanders above him and Some individuals below him didn't do such a good job. Some of the people below him were... who who Some of the people below him who were not very nice to the civilians, to say the least. Some of them just mentally... They weren't what we would consider normal. And there's people like that in the world. The people above him, however... the people that really change those statistics and really cause the issues and and maybe cause some of those individuals at the lower levels to do what they do. Some of his chain of command above him was more concerned with body count than they were with winning the war. Uh, Obviously depends how familiar you are with the idea of body count in Vietnam, but basically, let's say in World War II, we wanted to win the war by taking a city and getting closer to Germany. And then when we got into Germany, now we're going to go take Berlin. Okay. In Vietnam, that wasn't how that war worked. Vietnam was a war in which our enemy used unconventional tactics against our often conventional tactics so what that meant is they were living within the populace they would not often meet American forces on the field of battle when they did they lost every time so guess what they didn't do it that often what they did Is they would ambush They'd use snipers They'd attack from a village And then pull away And let the Americans continue to attack the village And we'll get onto this later too But by doing that They knew exactly The tactical and strategical implications Of the Americans attacking a village And they didn't care That the people in that village might die from the Americans. That was a win for them. Because if the Americans killed civilians, they knew what that would cause. It would cause more people to get on their side. So that was the tactics that were being used. And yet, America was using the stupid and er just ridiculous idea that we were going to use body count to win the war, which means we're going to kill more Vietnamese than the Vietnamese are going to kill of us, which sounds like it might work until you see what really happened. Hackworth has a lot of problems with his chain of command due to his personality being Uh, let's say, a little loud and hard to control and he acknowledges that however a lot of his problems with the chain of command are actually valid and as we'll see there's a lot of things that he identifies as being problems with the Vietnam War among them being body count his chain of command not caring about Really winning the war. And a lot of, a lot, a lot of reasons. He lists i and I'll, I'll try to cover it in this, but there's a lot to get to. But ultimately, it's enough to cause him to speak out. And in the end, he is put on TV. And... He's asked about his perspective on the Vietnam War and basically he just completely, he doesn't hold anything back and his chain of command, not a fan of that, the army as a whole, not a fan of that, and he's forced to retire at the rank of colonel. Which is something that when you read his autobiography, you could probably see coming. As he increases in rank in the army, going from private to colonel, having commanded every level of infantry and even many non-infantry units along the way, he becomes more And more unhappy with what the army is doing so in the end he leaves and moves to Australia and I think he goes on to start a couple businesses down there but that's sort of it for his army career 20 years later he goes ahead and writes these books. He writes about face. He writes a couple of fiction books, a couple of nonfiction, and this is one of his nonfiction books. And it is about his time with the 439, which is sort of the crowning moment of his entire career, and it is described in this book. Steal My Soldiers' Hearts And the subtitle is The Hopeless to Hardcore Transformation Of the U.S. Army, 4th Battalion, 39th Infantry, Vietnam And in this book, as that suggests He takes a battalion He's a battalion commander now And what he takes command of is a battalion that is hopeless. So, let's get to that now. General Garassi ate staff officers uncooked for breakfast, but the troops idolized him. Here's what I've got for you, he'd tell them, laying out a mission. Any questions? No? Good. Now go out there and knock their cocks stiff. Not a guy for euphemisms. When I asked him for the straight skinny on the 439th, he grinned and clapped me on the shoulder. Worst battalion I've seen in 26 years of service, Hack. You got your work cut out for you. The 439th area of operation, fire support base Dizzy, was set on the wagon wheel deep and banded land where five canals converged like spokes on a hub. From my chopper vantage point coming in, from Dong Tam, the place looked normal enough. But when I landed, I couldn't believe my eyes or nose. The whole base smelled of raw shit and rotting morale. Toilet paper blew across the chopper pad, machine gun ammo was buried in mud. And troops wandered around like zombies, their weapons gone red with rust. These were the sloppiest American soldiers I'd ever seen, bar none. Unkept, unwashed, unshaven, their uniforms ragged and dirty, hippie beads dangling alongside their dog tags, their helmets covered with graffiti. Where did these troops think they were? A fucking commune? In the middle of this shithole the command post, CP, of Lieutenant Colonel Frederick W. Lark, the officer I would replace in a change of command ceremony the following day. He'd snuggled his CP next to a 155mm artillery battery at the hub of the wheel while deploying his four rifle companies raggedy ass around the perimeter in defensive positions that would have melted away under a water buffalo's charge. The fire base was loose as a goose. My brain went into overdrive, sorting out priorities, assessing problem areas, and trying to keep cool. From what I saw in the first 30 seconds on the ground, I knew I'd need all the seasoned warriors I could find to turn the battalion around, and I needed them now. I meant to start by canning the outfit's S3 operations officer and 250 pound heavy drop sergeant major. To replace them, I'd sent for two men of my own. The first was Robert Press, who had served as first sergeant under my command in the 101st. We'd also served together in the States, as well as in Vietnam. And our partnership went all the way back to the same unit during Korea. Lean and mean, Press would be my new battalion sergeant major And the non-com's chief ass-kicker and role model. I loved this warrior. He was smart as a whip, tough as a one dollar stake, an NCO right out of James Jones from here to eternity. From the time he was a teenager during the Korean War, he'd been training and leading soldiers, and he knew his job the way a master carpenter knows his toolbox. On the flight up, we divided the chores. He'd concentrate on the non-coms, I'd work with the officers, and we'd meet in the middle with the troops. And Hack goes on to talk about the new operations officer, the S-3, Uh, so he's bringing in Major Neville Bumstead, which that's a pseudonym, and so is Frederick W. Lark is also a pseudonym because we're going to see that Lark wasn't exactly a great battalion commander. Um, Lark is who Hackworth is taking over for here. So he brings in Bumstead, and we see here that his first action that he's doing as he's taking command of the battalion is he's basically establishing his operation center. The guys he's going to be working with every day the role models for the troops, and he's firing the people who he clearly finds incompetent. One of the chapters in Jocko Willink's book is titled something along the lines of No Bad Units, Only Bad Leaders. That is a saying that Hackworth used. I don't remember if we come across it in this book but it was something he has quite strongly stated and that even goes back to Napoleon so Hackworth acknowledges this and not only is he coming in and saying you had a bad battalion commander and I'm going to be a better one but he's coming in and looking at the enlisted commander, looking at the operations officer, and saying, This guy's 250 pounds, the heavy drop sergeant major, and that's not going to fly around here. We need a soldier who's going to be the role model. And he'll touch on it in other spots, but enlisted men need another enlisted man to look up to, and officers need an officer to look up to, and so he is extremely aware of this, and he implements it effectively, and we can also see his just pure reverence for the infantryman in his description of the new sergeant major. It's just awesome. <laughs> it's just awesome. I just turned the page. I was finding the next plot to read from, and I realized that I had highlighted something that I wasn't planning on reading. But the next page is actually exactly what I was just talking about. And the first sentence of chapter 2 of Steal My Soldier's Hearts says, There are no bad troops... Just bad officers, an axiom as old as the profession of arms, and I'll go on through tightly clenched jaws. Press gave me a sit rep from his all night recon. There's no one to blame for the rotten condition of this battalion, but Colonel Lark during the days that the, the battalion has been set up at FSB Dizzy. Eighteen soldiers had been wounded inside the perimeter from mines and booby traps. Morale, understandably, was lower than Death Valley. And he goes on to explain some of the things that Lark did extremely poorly, which is the location of the battalion, uh, the fire support base anyways, um, his inability to maintain morale or discipline or basically anything a unit, a battalion in this case, needs to be successful. This guy, Colonel Lark, did not fit the mold for a good battalion commander. Uh, he says the troops agreed that Lark was a decent guy, an officer with good intentions, but only a general like William, William Westmoreland Lark had been great... The troops agreed that Lark was a decent guy, an officer with good intentions, but only a general like William Westmoreland. Lark had been one of Westy's dog robbers in the 101st. Would have entrusted him with an infantry battalion in combat. In the fourth year of the war, Lark had arrived in Vietnam, still searching for his combat infantryman's badge, a bare-bones combat distinction of having served in the line of enemy fire for at least 30 days, and his troops paid the price for his inexperience. If you don't know the combat infantryman's badge, as he states, it basically means that you've been shot at by the enemy, and Colonel Lark's coming in with no experience, taking over battalion command, and he's never been... In prolonged combat with an enemy which in some periods in history would have been a difficult badge to acquire Hackworth having by the end of the war earned ten civil stars uh, is a little <laughs> he's, he's definitely biased towards people with combat experience and understandably so and uh this guy Colonel Lark has none. So on one hand he makes a good point and we see that this combatant experience is extremely detrimental to the battalion and got men killed and at the same time we are seeing an example where Hack has his usual singular respect for the combat infantrymen. Now, I would argue, however, that what made Colonel Lark a poor battalion commander was not just his inexperience in command. There's dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of examples through just American history of inexperienced officers and enlisted men being in command of units in combat, and being able to do a a good job. And that usually comes down to training. But what made Colonel Lark so bad was his personality and his lack of character. This is from the book. If you wanted a symbol of Dizzy, which is fire support based Dizzy, you didn't have to look any further than, quote, Lark's throne. That's what the grunts... The name comes from the sound of an infantryman. Okay. If you wanted a symbol of Dizzy, you didn't have to look any further than Lark's throne. That's what the grunts, the name, comes from the sound an infantryman makes when he pulls himself up from the mud with a full rucksack and all his gear. Called the compact, white, portable toilet parked an easy amble away from the talk tent. It had come in with the Chinooks that choppered in a battery of 155mm howitzers, but no ammunition. Instead, they unloaded a Jeep trailer filled with beer and ice and the colonel's own porta potty That's just freaking ridiculous. That's just... If you think about... Being a soldier in a unit, and let's say you're in the artillery section and you need ammunition because you got guys out there getting killed, and the colonel shows up with his own freaking porta potty.
1: <sighs> this
0: is a little further down the page. Lurk had tasked the battalion operations sergeant with keeping track of casualties. When we arrived, the score Sergeant Jerry Slater had entered on the board looked like this. Enemy 127 killed in action. Friendly 32 killed in action. And 307 friendly wounded in action. The reality behind the stats knocked me out. After six months under Colonel Lark, the 439th had suffered the equivalent of nearly 40 percent casualties, without ever meeting a sing a significant enemy force in open combat. Rockets, mortars, booby traps, and friendly fire had done most of the damage. That is a nightmare to be a soldier. In that battalion. When Hack took over the unit and he was told that it was one of the worst that that general had ever seen, it was, this is, this is horrible. Just, just horrible. 330, almost 340 wounded or killed in action, 40% casualties, And that's just from rockets, mortars, booby traps. And then worst of all is friendly fire. So moving on, um, just looking at one of my notes here. Hack mentions that six million Vietnamese, nearly 35% of South Vietnam's, Vietnam's entire population, lived in the Delta. And they were caught in the crossfire of a cruel civil war, is what I was getting at earlier. So, touching back on the mines and that statistic of 40% casualties from the unit. Throughout the Vietnam War, the army training establishment never fielded an effective mine training curriculum or doctrine, or even something as simple as a training device that would go pop and bang to teach young soldiers about the apparatus that accounted for the greatest number of casualties. It's hard to even imagine how an army, especially the one that won World War Two, and did and will at least beat North Korea came to an agreement with North Korea after that and how we can go through those wars and show up in Vietnam and be taking casualties from mines and not have it in the training apparatus That that's it's crazy crazy. So we're going to go back to Lark a little bit in this section here. And this book really goes in depth into these two leaders. is Colonel Lark in the beginning, who Hack is taking over for. And uh, well, we'll get to the second guy later. But with Colonel Lark, go back to the book while overhead in the command and control chopper the colonel kept screaming faster go faster it was never going to happen the troops were already moving at max speed in a high lather the colonel landed jumping out of his bird he sprinted to a paddy dike and leapt on top of it to make his point a supreme mekong delta no-no And when the almost instantaneous explosion bloomed 20 feet in the air and he died immediately and needlessly, the ultimate ego trip, I was told the grunts cheered. When Lark took command, he knew that he had to turn things around and he worked hard to do so, but with zero combat experience and not enough time with the troops, his good intentions meant less than nothing. Even the basics were ignored he wore an army green baseball cap instead of his steel spot, his steel pot. Really cool. And steel pot means the helmet. Really cool. Except that the troops who, who followed his command, excuse me. Ugh. Really cool. Except that the troops who followed his model and neglected their helmets wound up in Doc Hawley's surgery with their brains running down their necks. He was into good guy fraternizing to build morale, a well-intentioned notion, but it made for bad news in the field. One night, he invited the 439th's new XO, basically the assistant commander, Major George Merger, to go to the officer's club in Dong Tam for a beer. Mergner, a skinny as a scarecrow regular army officer from Michigan who cracked a very professional whip, was on his second tour in the Delta. His arrival in the battalion preceded me by a month. The two men sat around the table with half a dozen of other officers, when, out of the blue in the middle of the second can of beer, larkin informed Mergner that, come sun up, he was to lead a two-company operation. Mergner, who, under the circumstances, would have preferred not to have had the beer, that was a quote, Had little time to plan, and no sleep. What a way to run a choo-choo train loaded with nitro. While commanding the rocket belt detail, Lark sent his A Company on a three-day sweep of a wood line completely empty of VC. But a Ho Chi Minh wet dream of booby traps and mines. That was the day Sergeant Tom Iken lost 17 of the 29 in his platoon without hearing a single shot. (sighs) That's just to think about the idea of being a platoon leader. And you start the day with 29 in your platoon. And you have this colonel with no experience who's just trying to be the nice guy. You know, maybe he read a book on how to be a leader and that's why he goes and jumps out of the chopper, right? He stands up on the hill and he's like, go faster and he's trying to, he's doing what some, sometimes works. In the right context but he's not the one to do it and he doesn't know what he's doing and he's not experienced there and to me it sounds like he's a sort of by-the-book officer who doesn't really know a damn thing about the book but read some of the words and on this one particular day of many He sends out a platoon of 29 men to walk through empty woods, and this platoon sergeant, Tom Iken loses 17 men. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean they all died. In Vietnam, I think the casualty rate was somewhere between 10 and 30 percent, between Not the casualty rate, I forget the exact term, but basically somewhere between 10 and 30% of the soldiers that were killed, sorry, the soldiers that were hit in some way by the enemy were actually killed. So, just going off that, maybe three or four men were killed that day, and another dozen were let's just say damaged and I would venture to say that old 29 probably weren't feeling so great mentally after that that's the impact that a bad battalion commander can have a bad combat leader can have It is a serious, serious job. I keep thinking I'm going to finish this podcast sooner than I am, but I flipped to the next page, and, and okay, we're going back to Lark again here. He ordered a good portion of the battalion to saddle up for a special mission. A VC POW had volunteered to lead us into an active regimental area where there was supposedly a large cache of weapons. Templeton set up the mission and led it himself. The turncoat VC led the unit through what could have been the most booby-trapped zone in Vietnam, and then he escaped. When he got away, you should have heard the traffic on the command net. From division on down, everyone went berserk. Orders came down to find the runaway at all costs. To a lethal symphony of exploding mines and booby-traps, The hunt went on, went on forever. Finally, someone radioed word that the escapee had been found dead. Only he wasn't the same size, and he wasn't wearing, and he was wearing a different color shirt. Most of us believe that some poor, innocent gook who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time gave his life for a VC countryman. He probably didn't even know. But, it, at, but at least the discovery finally, finally brought the chase to a close at a cost of 50 casualties, all from booby traps, and just one more disaster, not the exception, but the rule under Lark. This is just ridiculous. I mean, it's just, this is just, it, I, I would hope to God that this would never happen nowadays and I I truly don't think it would but so moving on now we have Hackworth taking charge and no We don't cut that. So now here's another little story that we have of what some of the lower-level leaders were doing under Lark. So Hendelson employed one of the oldest tricks in a small combat unit leaders kit bag. He fiddled the order and did a radio patrol. I would have done the same thing. In fact, I did the same thing when I was a company commander in Korea. And the brass ordered me to have my soldiers conduct foot patrols in front of our defensive positions in 20 degree below zero weather, a mission that guaranteed fingers and toes lost to frostbite. Heddleston moved out a few hundred yards and set up. We faked going through the area. That night, we set up in one place and never moved. We just sent in phony radio reports. I prayed all night that our own artillery wouldn't hit us because we weren't where I reported we were. I justify my actions to this day as taking care of my guys as opposed to following a dumb order. My guys knew I'd be court-martialed if I got caught. We knew if we didn't take care of each other, no one else would, and we probably wouldn't survive. So what Hack is talking about here um, is something that was portrayed really well in the book Beyond Band of Brothers by Major Dick Winters, which is basically you receive a horrible order, horrible operation by one of your leaders above you. You know that it's not going to benefit you or the larger mission. And when I say you, I mean your unit, obviously. So, you go outside of where your base is, and you fake radio traffic, basically saying, oh, I'm here, now we're here, now we're here, and you're really just sitting down, looking at a map, calling in fake radio traffic. It's something that can get you kicked out of the military, as it says here, The guys knew that there was a risk of being court-martialed, which is military punishment. But you got to keep the men alive, especially if it's not going to help you win the war, and you know it. It, Just unbelievably bad leadership is going on here. I'm going to have to skip through some of this introduction. This is only thirty five pages into the book, and the book is about four hundred pages long. So I gotta I gotta skip past. But there's there's so much in here. So now Hack is in charge and he he covers again that he fired a couple of the leaders and he brings in Bumstead and Press, which are two of his uh, old friends, and he says I'd have sent these leaders into overload and blown their circuits." So Hack now is in charge, and he covers again that he fired the S3 and fired the sergeant major and brings in his old friends, and he says, A thousand other changes needed to be made, but I didn't want to bury the company commanders or staff on our first day together. If I had ordered all shortcomings squared away immediately, I'd have sent these leader- leaders into overload, blown all their circuits. No one would have gone anything right, so I approached this conversation from slackness to soldiering the same way I train a pup, just a few tricks at a time. Starting now, we're gonna follow the two rule plan, I said. I'll tell you what the two new rules are, and you'll make them happen. Once your troops have mastered the first two rules, we'll add two more, and we'll keep doing that until we're squared away. First we'll crawl, then we'll walk, and then we'll run. Just stay with me, because we're gonna run faster and faster every day. They shot me a prove-it look. These are the changes for today, I shot back. We're always going to carry our weapons and they will be spotless. We will wear our steel pots at all times. Helmet helmet covers will be reversed to disappear the graffiti. So, this is perfect. He is acutely aware of The idea of overloading his men and he knows that he has a little bit of time he doesn't want As much as he wants the unit to be immediately squared away He has patience to understand that it's not going to be immediate He has to train his unit like he would train a pup, Just a few tricks at a time when I read that, or when I reread it a couple weeks ago, that line has been in my head every day. Is that when you have something to do and you have limited resources, and you always have limited resources, you have to pace because you can't overload every individual in that team. Or every aspect of that system. It just won't work. As he says, no one would have gotten anything right. And about the idea of the helmet covers being reversed to disappear the graffiti, he says, Before it was all over, the enemy soldiers we captured talked about badass brown hat soldiers. And those helmets became as distinct as fear itself Charlie, which is the name for the enemy always knew when we were the outfit on their butts an outfit means the unit basically what he's saying is that normally the outside of the helmet is green, but when he told them to reverse it, it was brown and he was said to reverse it because there was graffiti all over the soldiers' helmets, and the enemy eventually realized that the entire battalion now had brown, brown helmets. And so, when they saw it, it was a bad sign for things to come on their end. At this point in the podcast, I'm honestly not sure I could finish this all in one go. Uh, we're on page 41. <laughs> And I flipped the page again, and uh, I I can't skip over this. I just cannot skip over this. A few days later, after finding a very small soldier who told me his feet were killing him because he couldn't find any boots to fit him, they were all too big, I had a little discussion with the good S-4. Quote, hack went ballistic, Johnson recalls. He chewed out his chain of command. From his squad leader to his company commander, and then he got a hold of me. He made it very clear that I'd better get that man a pair of boots or all kinds of horrible things were going to happen to me. The army did not make a man's boot small enough to fit this little guy. We scavenged the country and found a pair of women's boots that fit the bill. This taught all of us an important lesson that Hack cared for the lowest of soldiers and he expected his commanders and staff to damn well look after them. That's just so powerful to walk in and and be this hard-ass leader who everyone knows it is just he's Mr. Infantry. I mean that was his nickname and everyone knew it. And To show up and everyone's thinking you're just going to be drill sergeant, hack on them, and you, quote, go ballistic to get the small guy the right size boots because his feet are killing him, that makes such an impact. Such an impact. That goes on a little later here, again, just going against this stereotype of what you would imagine him to be like. He says, I like bitchers. I've always found it's healthy when soldiers moan and groan. It's also much easier to sleep. (laughs) When the going's tough and the men are silent, watch out for a frag grenade to come rolling your way. A frag grenade rolling your way means you're going to get fragged, which is when the enlisted men kill their officer because he's a bad officer. It's not what you would expect from a leader like this to say he likes bitches, he likes guys complaining and it's healthy for them to complain. I I personally never really considered it that way and when I read this it really changed my perspective and I had to check myself and say maybe it is healthy when soldiers moan and groan and uh, I guess if you don't, if you don't make a problem with it, then you might not get fragged. That would be good. Uh, just the next page. I, it's it, I, I don't know what not to read. This is all so good. Strobe lights. They had just become SOP standard operating procedure at Hack's Commander's meeting that afternoon. Flipped on around the perimeter. The VC were hitting us hard, but we were ready. Wow, I thought. Stay close to this guy, and you'll be alright. And that's one of his guys in his unit talking about when they got attacked. A a, a defensive tactic, which is strobe lights. Hack had put it in that morning, and it saved them that night. Which... that contrasts what I said earlier about Lark and how the lack of combat experience maybe wasn't as important as character well in this case that combat experience and Hacks knowledge of tactics in this case it was the most important thing but that's juxtaposed by what we just heard which is that unlike Lark Lark Hack went and got the guy the boots Lark might have been nice to him he was a nice guy leader and you can read more about that if you read the whole book I just touched on the basics but Hack doesn't play that game if Hack hears a guy doesn't have boots he's going to say okay and turn around and just start going ballistic <laughs> Which is just the right thing to do. (laughs) It's just the right thing to do. And another quote from one of his guys in a similar situation to what we just read with the strobe lights and the rocket attack is something that Hack considered so important that when he gave speeches, which you can find on YouTube, there's a few of them, Uh, He recites this section This little quote He says Quoting one of the guys He's a mean son of a bitch But he knows what he's doing And then Hack says I was back in the game At first light I went out to meet the man behind the voice in the dark You the guy Who said I was a mean son of a bitch The soldier didn't flinch Yes sir I am then you're the first son of a bitch I've met in this outfit who knows what he's talking about. What's your name? Lieutenant Lawrence Taylor, sir. A New Yorker. I could tell by his accent. Taylor, huh? As I turned to go, I made a mental note to check him out. The outfit definitely had its studs. I just needed to find them. And so there, he's learning his men. He's learning their personality, he's figuring out their background, he's thinking about their accent and where they're from, and he's making a mental note, saying, I can use this guy later, and we'll see later on that he does, he does effectively use Taylor, Taylor ends up on a sniper team, as the head of the entire sniper team, and they are extremely effective at what they're doing. So now we're going to talk a little bit of tactics here. Though some were dragooned into the ranks, most willingly joined. This is about the anime in Vietnam. Most willingly joined what they saw as their own war of independence, because the end game was to get people on their side. The VC had no scruples about sniping from a hamlet, hoping a U.S. unit would return fire and cause civilian casualties. Look. The Yankee, he killed your daughter, your son. That's what I was talking about at the beginning of this podcast. Which is just the idea that they knew what they were doing. And they were going to win the war at any cost. Also on tactics. The VC knew most U.S. plans before the U.S. platoon and company leaders who executed them. The minute the request went in... A VC spy informed his handler who'd relay word to the local VC commander. Besides watching firebases and studying patterns, when patrols and ops went out, the VC would assign a tail to an American or Arvin, which is a Vietnamese partner of America, unit in the bush to report on its location, strength, and vulnerabilities. The VC were very detailed planners. But, strict adherence to the plan was also their Achilles' heel. They almost always stuck to the scenario even when things turned to shit. Clearly, they could be defeated, but only by an outfit that didn't underestimate them. A fast and flexible outfit that had its act together. The 439th did not qualify, yet. One of my early orders instructed all company commanders to read Mao's Little Red Book and to memorize the Vietnam Primer which is a book that Hack wrote on Vietnam tactics which I had written in the army with historian slam Marshall back in 1967 so this is the idea And again, I'm going to steal a phrase from Jocko Willink where he says that your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. And that is so clear in this section where Hack is Hack is one aware of his enemy and knowledgeable on the enemy and understands A. that they're always watching him and B. that They're always very detailed planners. So in order to think like the enemy, or as he often says to out VC the VC, what he's having all of his company commanders do is read their book and then read his book on how to fight the Vietnam War. You have to know your enemy and know yourself. And if we're going to follow the whole book of The Art of War, you also have to know the terrain, which Hack knows quite well. Although he's not a good map reader, which we may or may not hit on later in the book. But that's what he does. So, going back to Hack... And his personality and his character. Uh, the next thing he does is he's bringing back saluting, and he does it with a twist, which is that when a quote when a soldier saluted, I required him to sound off with a loud hardcore virkondo, sir, to which the officer would reply, "No fucking slack." Uh, he later says that he renamed his companies from. Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, and Delta to Alert, Battle, Claymore, and Dagger, which went down as Mickey Mouse until the troops got into it and thought it was very cool, which this is the thing, is he's coming in and making these changes, and these guys have just had no discipline whatsoever, and... He's he's kind of fitting the stereotype sometimes of what they think he's going to do. And even though that's the case, and even though it's juxtaposed by him doing things that do not fit the stereotype, his guys are slowly but surely getting into it. At the same time, quote, nobody liked hack, Alert Company's Tom Iken recalls, I remember the guys from B Company talking about, we're going to kill the son of a bitch, we're going to put a bounty on him.' and I'm telling you the truth, if I ever told it in my life, I turned around and glanced at one of them and I said, I'll throw in the first $20, But hack says but each time they saluted they gave themselves a little subconscious commercial a brainwashing that they were hardcore and after a while i knew they'd begin to believe they were the meanest mothers in vietnam the men of the soon-to-be hardcore battalion hadn't seen anything yet threats are no threats i continued to issue them a daily basic brown shoe army ass kicking and tightened both the discipline and standards more and more. Of all the many traits needed to survive and win on the battlefield, discipline is number one. Without absolute discipline, you lose. And these guys still had virtually none. I had a simple conversion plan. We'd concentrate on the ABCs of soldiering and follow Vince Lombardi's great leadership example. Forget the Hail Marys and fancy footwork. Just work on the blocking and tack arms.